Now, I would just invite you to grab a Bible, or you can look at the scripture on the screen behind me, but let's dive into Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. And Mark says this, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a very long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They also had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and they were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present that day. After he had sent them away, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and he responded, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given. Um, lost my place. Um, no sign will be given. Then he left them. He got back in the boat and he crossed to the other side. The disciples, they forgot to bring bread, except they did have one loaf with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and they said, it's because we only, uh, it's because we only have no bread. Now aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see nor understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? They said 12. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They said seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we come this morning to the midpoint of the gospel of Mark here in chapter 8. And if you have been here with us through this series, one of the things you might have noticed up to this point is that the disciples, they are in some sense a little slow, right? They are slow to get it. 
and they are slow to understand. They're struggling, right? They're struggling with what's going on with Jesus' power and his teaching and his work. And it's kind of ironic, if you, if you really think about it, that these, these 12, this group that was right there with Jesus and saw and experienced and heard all the things he was doing, right, that, that they still can't hear or see or speak properly about Jesus. It's kind of ironic. In other words, I think what we could say the disciples need is they need some divine intervention to understand. They need the grace of Jesus to open their ears and open their eyes and open their hearts and guide their tongue and their lips so they can understand and speak about Christ. So the disciples are a little slow, a little slow to get it, and they need grace. Yet one of the, one of the points that I think we see in this passage today is, is that readers and hearers of Mark, such as we are, are to see ourselves in the disciples' shoes, if you will, today. To kind of let this passage be a little bit of a mirror showing us that we're probably a lot like the disciples, that they kind of represent us, if you will, and to see that we too are sometimes slow to get it. And Jesus' frustrations in this text, they are posed to the disciples, but ultimately they're posed to every one of us here this morning. Do you not yet understand? In other words, Union Church, do you get it? Do you see? Do you hear? Or do you not yet understand? And I would say, if that's you, if you don't yet understand, and this passage is for you this morning. Maybe it's really for all of us in that way this morning. Now, in chapter 8, if you read through chapter 8, you will notice that there are a bunch of things going on. There's a bunch of teaching and miracles and activities. And I mean, in one way, you could say, well, pastor, you could probably make a sermon out of every one of those things. And that is true, but we're not going to do that. We're going to kind of take the bird's eye view of this passage today. Sort of a, a, a flyover, broad perspective of what is going on from verse 1 to verse 21 today. And we're going to do that sort of through three main points. First, we're going to look at the the first 10 verses. That's the feeding of the 4,000. And the first point is to approach Jesus with humility. And then the second thing we're going to look at is the next four verses, in verses 11 through 13, or maybe that's the next three verses, 11 through 13. And we're going to look at the demand of the Pharisees. And we're gonna, we, we'll sort of see how the Pharisees approach Jesus with a lot of arrogance. And then finally, what we're going to look at is Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees in, in the last section of the passage. And we're going to look at um, our need for divine intervention, our need for grace in order to understand. So we'll do that. That's where we're going this morning. First uh, is about approaching Jesus with humility, the first 10 verses. And when you read these first 10 verses, now it may seem to you that you've already seen this. Anybody feel that way this morning? You get a sense of deja vu this morning as you heard this text? Yes? 
Yeah, because, um, because Jesus has already fed a multitude, right? He's already done this. It's uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. And I think it was at the beginning of February, because it was also, I believe it was also a communion Sunday when I preached on the feeding of the 5,000. That was not my wonderful planning. It was just sort of how the Lord used it. And, uh, and someone said to me after church that day, like, what are you going to do? Because in a few weeks, you're going to get to the feeding of the 4,000. <laughs> I said, I don't know, I don't know, but we'll figure that out. we got a month. Um, so here we are, feeding of the 4,000. So you've already seen this. He fed 5,000. And then even more so, there, there are quite a few events that are repeated in these chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. For example, there is a feeding of a multitude in chapter 6 and in chapter 8. There is a crossing of the sea in a boat in chapter 6 and chapter 8. There is a conflict with the Pharisees in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. There is a conversation about bread and healing, and all of this culminates in a confession, both in chapter 7 and chapter 8. You sort of see a pattern going on. There's this, these events are repeated, this repetition, and you know, uh, Mark is showing us that Jesus thought it necessary to repeat these events and these teachings in order to impress upon the disciples the significance of, of it. Um, it's like if you were in school and you had a teacher who continues to emphasize and re-emphasize particular points of the, of the curriculum, then you, know, you might get the feeling like this is important, like maybe I should take some notes on this material because probably this will be on the test, right? So it's like a teacher might do that, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Like He wants to make sure that his disciples get it. He heals the deaf and the blind because... You know, the disciples also need to have their ears unplugged and, and they need their eyes to see. They need a lesson and, and frankly, they need another lesson. And so Jesus gives some repetition here. And all of it, all of it kind of in the broader picture of Mark is setting us up for what's going to happen next in chapter 8. We're not going to get to that today, but the next part of chapter 8 is when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Or who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter makes his confession that you are the Christ, right? You are the Son of God. And so that's, this, is all kind of, this is all kind of culminating there. The, it's one of the high points of the, of the Gospel of Mark. Now, um, now you, see, you see the disciples, I did mention, they're slow to understand. And that's one illustration of it is that it took Peter eight chapters. That's how slow he was. It took him eight chapters to be able to make that confession that you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, right? So um, that's why there's perhaps there's so much repetition here because they were pretty slow. Now, some critical scholars will say this. They will say about Mark chapter eight and the feeding of the 4,000, that this is actually the same event that we saw in chapter six, the feeding of the 5,000. They'll say it's like the same event, but you know, two different accounts of the same event, right? And that Mark's just kind of doubling the telling of this story. And we have to admit that these two, these two events do look pretty similar, yes? 
mean, there are quite a few similarities there. Jesus looks at the crowd. He feeds them. He has compassion on them. There are words that are very similar. He asks the same question, like, how many loaves do you have? Um, And so critical scholars would say, you know, how in the world could this not be the same event? Uh, I I mean, in addition to all of those things, the disciples, you know, they, uh, I mean, how could they, it's, uh, yeah. It seems sort of like they've forgotten what happened. I mean, how could they forget what had just happened with the feeding of the 5,000? So these scholars will say, well, surely it's the same, the same event going on. But nevertheless, I would contend that these, are the, or these were two separate historical events that did take place. There are similarities, yes, but, but I think we'll see that the differences outweigh the similarities. For instance, the, feed, the one feeding... The first feeding had how many loaves? Five loaves, right? The second feeding had seven loaves. It's different. The, the, word, uh, the, the, the first feeding had the two fish. The second had some fish. The word used for fish in the two accounts is different. The one in chapter 8 is sort of like sardines, like little tiny fish. The other one is sort of a more ordinary fish. The numbers are also different, 4,000 and 5,000. In the first feeding, the crowds are with Jesus for one day. In the second feeding, the crowds were with Jesus for three days. That's different. The amounts of leftovers is different as well, right? Twelve baskets and seven baskets. Even the word used for basket in the two accounts is different. The first account, the basketfuls of, of leftover pieces, was kind of like a basket, like you know, like a basket on the communion table, a gift basket, if you will. Uh, in the second feeding, in chapter 8, the word for basket is, it connotes a basket that would have been huge, like that a man could actually fit in. Even, it, it's the same, like the man that was let down through the roof, like maybe was in a basket like this. It could, very, very large. So these are differences that I believe indicate to us that these these are similar events, but that these were two separate historical events that took place. Um, probably where you see the most difference is this, is that in the beginning of, of chapter 8, it says, during those days, or in those days, kind of saying like, during this time, connected to what happened right before it, these things were taking place. And so it, it sort of connects the feeding to what was going on in chapter 7, which was that Jesus had gone to the Decapolis and he was teaching and ministering to a multi-ethnic crowd of Gentiles. And so that connects this feeding to those events, to ministry to the Gentiles. And it shows us that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. I mean, he is but that also he is here and he is the Savior to the Gentiles and to everyone who would call on his name. And so he's reaching out and ministering to this multi-ethnic crowd of 4,000 people. It's telling us that he is the Savior of the world. Amen? And it's telling us that anyone can come to Jesus and that Jesus will receive anyone regardless of of their background or their ethnicity or their culture or their nationality. Therefore, like, 
any one of you here this morning, though we may be different from some different nationalities and cultures, right, that you can come to Jesus, every one of us. He will receive you. He will reach out and have compassion on everyone, even us, this morning. Now in verse 2, it tells us yet again that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He's been teaching them for three days. He's worried about them, right? And, and this word compassion, it's like in the first feeding, it's this compassion that's a very visceral compassion. It's from deep within. It sort of, it sort of connotes the, the heart and lungs and you know, kidneys and liver like, like it's from the gut, this compassion. It's like everything he was, he had this compassion on the crowds. Um, he was moved to the core of his being. And, and of course, that's different. That kind of compassion that Jesus has is different than it often is for us. I, I'll, I'll at least use myself as an example, right? Um, sometimes I see, just like you would, sometimes I see the marginalized in our community. Sometimes I see the outcasts in our community. Sometimes I, you know, I often see them like at the stoplights, Right? or they want to wash your windows, or sell you a little something. And sometimes I don't do anything. Sometimes I help a little bit. Here's a few cue, right? Oftentimes it's just because I feel guilty, right? Or I want to be seen as like a generous person. Or I just want to make myself feel better. But that's different. That's a different kind of compassion than the compassion that Jesus has. He's not moved by guilt. He is moved from the gut with all of his being expressing itself into the, the details of people's lives, right? I mean, it's kind of cool. Like he, he sees in verse 3, if I send them home hungry, they might collapse on the way. Some of them have like a long journey ahead. So Jesus has this wonderful concern. It's very practical in uh, the details of people's lives, right? Like they've got a long journey. They need some food for the journey, right? So he has this concern for the, the daily practical matters of life. You may have already noticed this difference in the two, the two texts. Uh, in, in the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter, chapter 8, I'm sorry, in chapter 8, um, Jesus has a little more of a secondary role. In chapter 8, he takes a more prominent role in the events. And the disciples have a lesser role in chapter 8 than they did in chapter 6. They're less responsive in the second feeding. Um, Jesus also, if, um, if you like grammar, you might appreciate this, in the first feeding, chapter 6, Jesus is referred to in the, the third person. And in the second feeding here, the feeding of the 4,000, he's referred to in the first person. And maybe that's not a big deal, but I think perhaps it is significant, the use of these personal pronouns, because it is telling us in this second feeding that Jesus has a heart for his people, right? It personalizes Jesus to us, the reader. It's telling us, in other words, that Jesus' compassion, brothers and sisters, it is for you. Even today, he cares about you. And he cares about the details and the practicalities of your life, just like he did in that text. I think that's what Mark is saying here. Now, the disciples, they want to know, we see, they want to know 
how is Jesus going to feed this crowd with just a few loaves and a few fish? And I think in a way, this is not so much a, an indication that they forgot what Jesus had done back in chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000, but maybe just that they don't want to be presumptuous, right? They don't want to assume what he's going to do. They don't want to take it for granted. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like, I, I wonder, you know, they're wondering, um, Jesus, uh, what are you going to do now, right? What are you, sort of this wondering, non-presumptuous question, you know, you have compassion on them, what are you going to do now? And then Jesus responds with that same question, well, well, disciples, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? And, and um, you know, it's the same question, and I think it's a signal. The disciples are wondering, how is Jesus going to do it this time? And then they kind of ask, and he, and he says, how many loaves do you have? And it's like, bam, this is the signal. The disciples know, like, we are about to see a miracle, right? We know. He's given us the signal for what he's going to do. How many loaves do you have? And um, so he's going to do it. He's going to do it again. And in this way, I think the disciples have forgotten what went on only briefly before, but, but um, they're, they're seeing it again. And then after the people are fed, 4,000 people are fed. There's leftovers. And, and if you picked up on this, this is a similarity. In both cases, the people were satisfied. They ate. And they were satisfied. So Jesus, you, for you, Jesus wants to satisfy you this morning. He has compassion on you. He cares about the practical details of your life. He sees where you are. He understands your insecurities your physical conditions, the losses you may experience in your family, the difficulties in your marriage, the struggles of raising children, the financial anxiety that, that, some, of us, that some of us experience. He understands these things, and He understands that you are not satisfied with the things of this world. He sees, and He knows and he has compassion. And he says, I understand you. I understand where you are. I understand what you're going through, but don't worry. It's going to be okay. He sees where you are. In the same way he saw where those 4,000 were. And they were loved and accepted and cared for and fed and satisfied and he wants the same for you this morning now that response of Jesus to the crowd stands in stark contrast to the way that he responded to the Pharisees that we see in verses 11 through 13 and that brings us to our second point about the demand of the Pharisees and how this was very different because the Pharisees approached Jesus with an agenda and with a lot of arrogance and we know from the outset their heart because in verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. So we see already, they've got an agenda, right? They come across very, very strong and very arrogant in their approach to Jesus. They were, they were wanting to argue with Jesus. They were wanting to discredit Jesus, to get the upper hand 
on Jesus. That's their agenda. That's their purpose. And you know, like, I mean, what they say may not, may seem somewhat innocuous. And we know this, right? Sometimes it's not what somebody says, but it's how they say it that really indicates sort of their agenda, right? It can be not what's said, but how it's said. Now, the Pharisees, they're posing this question, and, and I think what we're seeing and what Jesus was picking up on is that they weren't coming to learn. They weren't coming for more understanding. They were not coming with a humble heart, but they were coming to discredit and to control Jesus. And in response, in verse 12, Jesus, he says, well, he first says he sighs deeply, oh, right? And then, and then he refused to give them a sign because he knows that it will do no good to give them a sign of all the ministry that Jesus has done, the miracles, the teaching, all of these things that we've already seen in Mark's gospel. I mean, they're aware of these. And he knows that just doing another miracle won't change anything for them. It, and, and if anything, it, it will harden their hearts even, even further. A miracle won't help. And so that's his response to the Pharisees. Now, you might say, Pastor... That doesn't seem like a very loving or Christian response by Jesus to the Pharisees, right? Maybe so, right? But Mark here is making a point. And he's making a point about how we are to approach Jesus. And he's making this point that Jesus will, he will accept anyone, but he wants you to approach him with humility of heart and not with arrogance, So that's kind of the the contrast we see set up. We have Jesus' compassion for the 4,000 sort of contrasted against this discouragement that Jesus gets from from the Pharisees. So we, we see that. He's so frustrated with the Pharisees. And we also see here, you know, Jesus will accept and receive anyone. He will unplug your ears. He will open your eyes. He will give you divine intervention by His grace. And that will satisfy a humble heart, but you must come before him with humility of heart and not with arrogance and not with an agenda. That leads us to our last point today, uh, starting in verse 14, our need for divine intervention. So in these verses, uh, I've already spoken about how we see this, the heightened fashion of the slowness in the disciples. For all that the disciples had heard and seen and experienced of the ministry of Jesus, they seem to be so slow to kind of compute this, right? And here they are now. They are in the boat with Jesus, and what did they forget? They forgot the bread, right? We've had these feedings of thousands of people with bread, and now they forget the bread. And they're having a discussion about what to do about this little problem. And, and upon hearing the discussion, Jesus begins to rebuke them with a series of questions. It's like he's had it with them at this point, right? I mean, if you're a parent, you know someone's with your kids, you're just like, oh, I've had it with these. You know what this kid's doing. And, and that's how Jesus almost is here. In verse 17, aware of their discussion, he asks them, why are you talking about having no bread? You know, in other words, have you not seen the miracles I have just performed with bread? Do you not see? Do you not understand? You have eyes, but you can't see. Ears, but you can't hear. Right? You fail to understand. So he's making a point. Jesus is like, how many times do I have to do this and say this? And you don't understand. 
When I was a young person, I was in high school, a junior in high school, and I was taking chemistry. And I wasn't very good at chemistry. Right? Anybody else? You weren't very good at chemistry? Right? A, few, a few of you? I know some of y'all are good at chemistry. I was not very good at chemistry. My dad, when he was in university, he was a chemistry major. He was good at chemistry. Somehow these things don't transmit genetically. Or they skip a generation. I'm not sure. I was not good at chemistry. And so my dad would tutor me in chemistry, and this was probably one of the most traumatic events of my growing up years. He would tutor me often when we were eating dinner, and I was trying to figure out these chemistry problems, and I didn't understand them. And he would, he would not explain them, but he would just do the problems. You know, I would watch him do the problems, but he wouldn't explain it otherwise and would leave me to kind of figure it out based on how he did the problem. Now, he thought pedagogically this was the way to do it, the way to teach it. But the whole time, I just didn't understand. And I couldn't do it, and I would just sit there sort of like a dummy, confused. And my dad would be so perplexed. He would be like, how do you not understand? I just showed you how to do it. Right? I just showed you. And I share that simply because I, I think in some sense that's how Jesus was here with the disciples, right? He's given them some lessons on bread. He showed them how to do it. Right? But... They still don't get it. Do you still not get it? Do you still not understand, right? And then in verse 15, Jesus cautions them. He says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. So yeast or leaven in the Bible, it is used often as a metaphor for sin or for corruption, and so Jesus is saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't let sin and corruption creep in. Watch out, right? Because a little bit will go a long way. Will make a big impact, you know. You know, if you bake, bake bread, you, know, make that, you make that dough and you get the yeast in it and it's just like a normal ball of dough and you set it there and leave it and you come back later and it's gotten bigger, right? A little bit. I mean, there's not much yeast you have to put in there. A little bit will make a big impact. That's what he's saying. A little bit. A little bit of unbelief. A little bit of corruption. A little bit of sin can have catastrophic consequences. And so, you know, this morning, I think Jesus also gives that warning to us. Watch out, right? If there's a little bit of sin festering, a little bit of corruption there. Watch out, because a little bit will go a long way, right? I mean, struggle with it. Wrestle with it. Run from it, right? Because if you don't address it, Jesus is saying, a little bit can corrupt the whole thing. And I wonder, you know, if Jesus is kind of 
thinking the disciples are regressing a little bit here, right? And it's just sort of perplexing for Jesus. It's surprising for us. I mean, they've seen all these things. They've been with Jesus through these miracles and these teachings, and and they just seem so slow to understand. And honestly, I know this is probably not the right way to say it, but honestly, sometimes they just seem stupid. I know that sounds harsh, but they just don't get it. But I think that's what's so amazing about this passage And it's, you know, what's so miraculous is that when you look at these verses and you look at these disciples and you look at the passage, and and like I mentioned before, it kind of draws us in to see ourselves in, in the place of the disciples, in the shoes of the disciples, to let this passage be a mirror to us, right? I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing. And then to think, oh my goodness, right? If I see myself in these verses and hear my voice in these verses and see my heart in these verses, I don't know, can you hear Jesus' voice in these verses? Maybe it sounds like this. I'll just use myself as the example. Mark. Mark, are you still not getting it? Right, like my dad with chemistry. Mark, do you not yet understand? Mark, do you not yet see or hear? And all of us, we can probably see ourselves as slow and and therefore in need of His grace. In need of His divine intervention in our lives to open our ears and open our our eyes, so that we can see and hear and understand by His grace. Now, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, I say this lovingly, but I have to say it, right? Then, then you were blind and you were deaf. And if you have not fully embraced Jesus, or perhaps you have, but now you're just kind of stagnant in your faith, then you are blind. And you are deaf. And to some degree or another, we all, we all are in the same boat somewhat. And you might be saying, well, what, pastor? Understand what, pastor? To understand that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the Son of God. That He is the Messiah. That He is the Lord and King of your life to understand this. You see, in verse 14, Mark tells us the disciples, they forgot to bring the bread and that they only had this one loaf in the boat for all of them. Um, Now, some commentators on this passage are pretty clever and they say the one loaf of bread represents Jesus with them, right? Because the Bible says Jesus is the bread of life, which is kind of a cool commentary on this verse. I don't, I don't know if that's the actual intention or not, but it is kind of a cool, a cool interpretation. But the point is the same, that, 
that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that He is the bread of your life, that He is the only one that can truly and fully satisfy you. He is the only one who truly cares about you and has compassion on you, even in the the details and practicalities of your life. And this is, again, setting up that confession that comes next in chapter 8 that Peter makes. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? You are the Messiah. And I pray, brothers and sisters, I pray that that would be for every single one of us. That would be our confession if Jesus were to ask you, who do you say that I am? Right? And I pray also, brothers and sisters, that we would not just respond with our lips, but also with our hearts and also with the actions of our lives right, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Lord. And I want to leave you today with these questions. Do you see him in this way? Or are you deaf and blind? Do you hear him? Or do you not yet understand? Because I pray that every single one of us, by his grace, would come to see and to hear and to understand and to know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Lord, and that by believing, you will have life in his name.